Amen. Take a Bible. There are some church Bibles at the back if you'd like to use one of those and turn in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in the second chapter of Peter's first letter. In a few moments we'll read the first three verses. So that's 1 Peter 2. But before we read, let's pray. Lord our God, I pray that you'd come by your Holy Spirit and give us illumination. Illuminate our understanding. Lead us back to the Lord Jesus. Pray that you'd show us the bankruptcy of life on our own terms and help us to find hope and rest and full sufficiency in the Saviour. Enable us by your word to walk new paths of obedience. Sanctify us by the truth. Thank you that your word is truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, this is God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. So we're in chapter 2 this morning of 1 Peter. And we're continuing to examine the message of what is a manual for living a life on mission together. Um, Peter describes twice in the first chapter that Christians are elect exiles of the dispersion. And that means that we are pilgrims, we are temporary residents. This is not home, we are just a passing through. And that we have a hope, we have a glorious hope. And I can't impress upon myself, my own heart, enough. But that is the trajectory of how we live. That we have an eternal hope. And that is set before us. And Peter is very helpful in that. And we are, if you like, marginal people on the fringe because we follow King Jesus. And because that is true, Peter does not want us to back off or to withdraw from the world around us. He doesn't want us to do that. But he doesn't want us to compromise and to blend in so that there's no difference at all. He doesn't want us to back away you know, and live in a tree hut. And he doesn't want us to compromise and blend in. But he wants us instead to bear witness. And he says it is costly witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in an increasingly hostile context. So the question is, as we read 1 Peter again and again and again is, how then should we live so that we can bear witness to the power of grace in an increasingly dark world? Which is incredibly practical, isn't it? And it's incredibly pertinent to us all. How should we then live to bear witness to the power of grace in the midst of a dark world? And we've begun to see the first two parts of Peter's answer to that question. In chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, Peter's focus is Godward. He has this hope. His focus is toward God. 
He points us to Jesus coming back. And he reminds us that God is holy and we should conduct ourselves in holiness, living before God with fear because he is our father and our judge. So there's a Godwardness to it. And then last time, beginning at verse 22, the focus is more about one another. Peter called us earnestly to love one another from a pure heart. So they're, they're the two parts of his answer to the question, how, how therefore should we live? To please God and to serve him, to be a witness to him in a dark world. And Peter says simply, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbour. It's really, really simple, but really difficult. To love God and to love your neighbour, which is, summarises the whole duty of a Christian. That's how Jesus summed it up. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Love for God. Love for one another. And as we come to our verses this morning, just the three verses, opening verses of chapter 2, Peter hasn't finished with the second part of the summary of Christian faithful living. You see the same themes from chapter 1, 22 and following are continuing on in these first three verses of chapter 2. So for example, the positive call to brotherly love continues here in the negative call in verse 1 of chapter 2 to put off malice, hypocrisy, envy, slander, deceit, so that's the, po or the positive call to the new birth. You're born again by the living and abiding word. That was chapter 1. And in chapter 2, the second and third verses, we're like newborn infants. And we must therefore long for the pure milk of God's word. And I, I'm gonna, I don't mean to sound in any way arrogant, but this is one of the places where I per personally believe that the editors, because that's who they were, who put the chapters and verses in the translation of the Bible. I'm being very careful, I'm not criticizing the Bible. But the chapters and verses, I think, are slightly off here. Because I think chapter 2 should begin at verse 4. Because verses 1 and 3 are really a carry-on to the end of chapter 1. And they continue the thought and finish off the thought. And seeing that, making that right connection... So putting the beginning of chapter 2 with the end of chapter 1, I think it's quite helpful because it helps you understand what Peter is doing here. He's calling us to love one another sincerely and earnestly. And then he's giving some practical help how to do it in the verses today. So I think Peter is saying two things in verses 1 to 3. If you're going to live for Christ in a dark world, you need to do two things. And it's, it's borne out by the rest of the New Testament. It's a wonderful thing. You need to dress the part, number one. You need to dress the part. You need to put on a new wardrobe. You need to put on a new wardrobe. And then you need to cultivate an appetite for the right kind of food. You need a different diet. So you see that in verses 1 through 3. You need a new wardrobe. It's put, off, put away and put off. You know, like the old garments, those vices that he lists, 
are remnants of the old life. So put those off and put on a new wardrobe. And in verses 2 and 3, we need a new appetite for a new diet. We are newborn infants. We need to long for the milk that help you grow. So that's my two points simply. We need a new wardrobe and we need a new appetite. We need to dress the part and eat right if we're going to live for Christ in difficult days. So we're going to look at these two themes, these two exhortations of Peter. First of all, put on a new wardrobe. Last year, I don't know whether you remember it, I only came across it this last couple of weeks and I found it a fascinating story. There was a major search operation for a missing tourist in Iceland. So there was a tourist who went to Iceland to the, the, the southern volcanic region of Iceland and there was this canyon and the tour bus driver reported her missing that she'd failed to return at the given time. The driver waited for an hour and when she didn't show up he went to the authorities. The description of the hiker was circulated amongst the search and rescue teams in the area. They were to look for a five foot two Asian woman in black clothing. That description was put out there to look for this missing tourist. And the search went on to three o'clock the next morning and they finally called the search off when they found that the woman herself was searching, <laughs> was participating in the search. Because he'd got the head count wrong on the bus and she had changed clothes. She had changed clothes, she had changed her outfit, he'd got his head count wrong and she didn't realise they were looking for her. So she contributed to the search and when they read this description of her, she, she didn't recognise herself because she wasn't wearing black anymore and she threw herself into the search to find this missing person because they all thought that the guy had got his head count wrong but he got it wrong by one, right? So, but the whole thing happened just because she changed her wardrobe. That's what, you know, that's what I thought. And uh, So it's an imperfect illustration of what I'm trying to say. It's a very extreme example, but it makes the point that what you wear is not entirely superficial. It can have significant implications. And that's the case in chapter 2, verse 1. The first thing Peter says, if we're to live for Christ, is a new wardrobe. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, this wardrobe, he says, will make all the difference. Put off, put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And that verb that's translated, you probably know it from other scriptures as well, that put away is to take off. It's the word that, that is used for taking off a coat or taking off a garment. It is used consistently through the New Testament for similar instructions to this one. Paul, for example, we know it well, Romans 13 or, and Ephesians 4 particularly. And James 1, verse 21, we even looked at it this past week on Thursday night. And you see it in Peter here in our text. The classic New Testament metaphor for the believer's active combat and engagement, removal of patterns and habits, and actions of sin in their lives is to put off. And the word that the New Testament uses is like to take off 
a coat, to put it off. Peter is talking us, calling us to action. Peter doesn't have in mind the passive melting away of sin. I wish that was how it happened, that sin suddenly drifted, off, drifted away. But no, it's not, it's not how it happens. Making progress in Christian godliness does not happen while you're looking somewhere else and you just kind of ease into it. I wish that was happen how it happened, but it is not. You sometimes hear people talk about it this way, and it's not entirely wrong, but it's missing something out. You know, just reappropriate yourself again, the glory of your justification. Or see the wonder of the righteousness of Christ reckoned to you. It is so thrilling that your heart will melt with gladness before God and you will not want to sin. And when I hear that, I think, well, that's true if you capture the glory of grace, the freedom, the generosity of God in bestowing kindness on you. It inclines your heart to want to please him, yes, but that's not the whole picture. The scriptures call us to an active engagement with the habit of sin. That we have to take decisive, deliberate steps to put it off. We have to take it off. We have to take that coat off. Yes, we need the motivation, the expulsion of a new affection. Yes, we need to see the wonder of grace and have our hearts thrilled with gratitude. Yes, we long to please God because of the cross and the empty tomb. But we must also take the mallet and crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. There's no passivity possible in pursuing holiness. And if you look at the, at the moment, just for a moment, at these five vices in particular, that Peter says we must actively put off. Because the instruction comes in the context of this broader exhortation to love one another. So these five vices are designed to describe the opposite of that, the opposite of love. So what Peter is saying, this is anti-love. Malice, hypocrisy, deceit, envy, slander is the opposite of brotherly love. It's the opposite of loving one another. There's a number of things we should notice about the list. There's organic connections between the vices. Malice is an evil desire to wound somebody. That's malicious, isn't it? Malice is an evil desire to wound somebody. And deceit is the weapon that malice uses to strike at the target. Hypocrisy is the reaction of a malicious heart when they're called on their sin. That's that self-righteous instinct to justify yourself. Deflect, condemn someone else. And envy lies at the root of so many malicious feelings. You see, the organic connection. We want what others have. We want to be as others are. And when we can't, I'm talking, you know, the, 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 the sinful nature of our hearts, we try and tear them down a peg or two. And slander, Sam Storms wrote a tremendous 
new commentary on the, I've got it at home, wonderful commentary, um, puts it this way. Slander, and the word is catatalius, is most often motivated by the desire for revenge and self-enhancement, often driven by a longing to deflect attention from their own failings. By shining a light on someone else through slander, we may be able to deflect attention from our own darkness. And we see that in the world all around. We see it in politics. We see it everywhere. But we, we feel it in our own hearts if we're honest. By shining a light on someone else, hopefully it will deflect from me. And that's very insightful. And that's what we're doing when we spread abroad other people's faults and failures. When we shine a light on their weaknesses, their mistakes, their problems. Many times we're simply trying to distract other people from the darkness that festers in my own heart. So there's an organic connection between these five vices. When you find one of these weeds in your heart, beware, because all the others thrive in the same soil. So when one of the poison fruits grows in your life, do not be surprised to find the others around too. And if you indulge one, the others may soon demand your attention too. The second thing to notice about the list, that's the first one, is that they're organically connected, is the wonderfully helpful realism. It's wonderfully helpful to see how honest and straightforward Peter is being with Christians. Because he can say to his readers and then say to us, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He said that. And I think it's very realistic because just because you've been born again doesn't mean to say that you're not going to struggle with sin. And we know that to be true, don't we? Peter is not describing the devil in chapter 2, verse 1. He's describing me and you. And Peter is describing followers of Jesus and their besetting sins. Robert Murray McShane from Dundee, a very influential preacher, St. Pete's in, 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 in Dundee. He died at 29. He had a wonderful preaching ministry. He was visiting the Docklands in Dundee and he was appalled at the open display of depravity and wickedness he saw at the docks. He was really, he was really burdened by the depravity he saw at the docks. And as his heart was reacting in judgment, you know, in, in condemnation, it suddenly occurred to him and he wrote it down. The seeds of every conceivable sin dwelt in my own heart too. And I think sometimes, you know, we should say it. You know, you know I grew up being taught to say it, but we should say it and mean it. There, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. The good news is that the reign of sin, the mastery of sin is broken in your life if you're a Christian. But the presence of sin carries on in our heart. And it will be until we get to glory. You see, when you, are, when you became a Christian, I often think you're a bit like a freshly mowed lawn. 
I love to see a freshly mowed lawn. I don't, we don't see it yet, do we? It smells great, doesn't it? Don't you, don't you love the smell of a freshly mown lawn? I do. Maybe I'm a bit weird like that, but I, absolutely, I, actually, love, I actually love it because it reminds me. All the weeds have been de- you know, decapitated. It, it, oh, it should be anyway. It looks great, and, but unless you dig out that root, that thing's coming back. And that's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying there's been real change and then you need to spend the rest of your days digging out that weed. But it's not to, it isn't to discourage us and go, really? No, it's to encourage us. That to live a life as a Christian, going towards the goal, we have to be digging out those heads. And it will take us until we go to be with Jesus, but that's our task. And Peter is realistic about it. And it's helpful because he doesn't say that if you're a Christian, everything is sweetness and light from now on. We can drink chamomile tea, whatever we are, or in my case, a nice coffee, or, you know, and just drift home. No, he says, now begins the hard work, that hard, hard work of rooting out those vices. So there's an organic connection between them, and Peter is incredibly realistic about it too. But there's a reminder, thirdly, in that little word, all, in verse 1. He wants us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And it tells us, Peter tells us when it comes to putting away sin, when it comes to taking off, there's no place for moderation. There's a saying, isn't there, moderation in all things. Um, Which is probably helpful in some things, but it's terrible advice when it comes to dealing with sin. We never allow ourselves to rest content with a little progress. That's my great temptation. You make some progress and you feel so proud, you take a break. And then there's, you know, there's, you know, we tell ourselves sin is not, not all sin is equally serious. So that means I do not need to take all sin equally seriously. It's only little stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. Cut yourself some slack. Live a little. And if that's how we think, we've forgotten that every sin, however small, is an offence against the holiness of God. One, you know, one, one saying that has stayed, stayed with me my whole life is my mother telling me that one lie is enough for, for Jesus to have to die for you. And, and that's true. Don't, we've forgotten that every sin required the lifeblood of the Son of God to make atonement for it. And yet we can indulge it, we can play with it, we can coddle it, we can give it permission to thrive. Unfortunately, but it's true, hell will be filled with people who said, you know, I was a good guy. I thought the little things didn't matter. And Peter is saying, do not rest until all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander is rooted out of your heart. It will take the rest of your days until we're face to face with Jesus. But since Jesus died to atone for your malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, will you now fail to live every day to put them off? And that's Peter's question. So Peter says we need a new wardrobe. We need to take the grave clothes off. 
Remember last time we talked about Lazarus when we talked about the new birth. By the word of God, Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb and he came forth. But he came forth dressed in grave clothes. And we are still dressed in grave clothes. We're alive. The grave clothes are still on. We need to take them off. The remnants of our old life, we need a new wardrobe. But secondly, Peter says we need a new appetite in verses 2 and 3. We need a new wardrobe, verse 1. And in verses 2 and 3, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice how he speaks about us first. We are like newborn infants. Now, uh, it, when I was studying it, I, I, I thought this was right, but I'm convinced it's right, that he doesn't mean that the readers are immature in their faith. I don't think that's the point he is making. He's not saying that if, you, if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years, you can switch it off. This doesn't apply to you. Now, you know, if you've been a Christian for 40 years, just, just, you know, just park it. This is for young Christians. I don't think that's the point. I think Peter is saying that every single believer, in a sense, is like a newborn infant. Because the means by which you must grow is for which you must long. The only way of growth is by this pure spiritual milk that he mentions in verse 2. And growth happens by drinking the pure spiritual milk. The phrase pure spiritual milk is the nourishment that Peter says it is necessary for us to grow. So that's an important phrase that's worth breaking down a little bit. First of all, Peter says this milk is pure. I occasionally like to use the Greek words, not often, but just hearing the different sounds of them helps you see what Peter is really doing. That doesn't come out in the English translation. So the word for pure is the Greek word adalon, adalon. And adalon is the opposite of Dolon, which is the word for deceit, in verse 1. So what Peter is saying is, I want you to put off deceit, and by extension, all the malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander, I want you to put it off. And instead, because it's the opposite, I want you to drink the true, sincere, reliable, real milk, the spiritual milk. So by drinking the true milk, you might become true, real, sincere, reliable, authentic. The quality of the milk produces the character in us, which is what Peter is saying. The fullness of salvation into which we grow up, a holy life that pleases God, that helps us love one another, that puts off the vices of anti-love. Peter says that such a life grows as we drink the pure sincere spiritual milk. Notice the other adjective Peter uses to describe the milk we need. It is spiritual, it's pure, and it's spiritual. And this time the Greek word is logikon, which is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 
when he invites us to offer our bodies, living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. This is your logicon, your spiritual worship. And Peter is using it to, to mean spiritual, but it is a play on words. It is echoing language Peter has used earlier. How is it that you were born again? Remember? By the living and abiding word of God, by the living and abiding logos of God. So the word, the logos of God, gave you life. And how are you going to grow now that you life, because it was the Logos that gave you word by the pure Logicon milk, which is the word of God. So that's, what's, that, that's what Peter is saying, is that the spiritual milk is the word of God. It's the word of God, which is the Logos that, helped, that, that brought you to, be, to new birth, and it's the spiritual milk, the word of God, that will help you grow. It's the same interesting parallel passage in James 1, verse 21, that uses the same vocabulary that Peter uses here. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's the same language. And instead of saying long for spiritual milk, James says, receive with meekness the implanted word. So Peter is saying the pure milk, that's what Peter says, Peter says you need pure milk and James says you need the implanted word. So you put it off, you put off sin and you drink the word. That's how you're going to grow. Why am I not making more progress as a Christian? Why do I stumble so often and seem to know so little power in my daily combat with my remaining sin? Why is my appetite for sin so strong? And my appetite for spiritual things, for worship and fellowshipping with God's people. The praises of God, the preaching of his word. Why is that so weak? Why is my appetite stronger for this than it is for that? There may be all sorts of reasons, but Peter suggests the place you start is your neglect of the word of God. The living and abiding word of God by which God caused you to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is the same word. That is the same word that Peter now says will help you grow, will, will nourish you. Babies need pure milk to grow. You, and they need the best. They need their mother's milk, but if they can't, then they need the best nourishment. Why? To help them grow. And Peter is saying that you need the Word to help you grow, to nourish you. It seems so elementary, but I found it to be a principle in my own life that when I fail to be consistent over a period of time in reading the Scriptures, the, the allure of the world grows stronger and the pull of God's things gets weaker when there's been a sustained period where I'm not diligently in the Word. But even when you don't feel like it and you don't know what to do, if you persist in reading the Scriptures, the opposite is true. If you persist in opening it and reading it, 
Because immersing yourself in God's word, you're better equipped and able to live for him in other areas of our life. The same is true of prayer. You know, sometimes we, we, you know, we have a breakthrough in things that you, and you suddenly realize you know, that you prayed about it and then you're like surprised. Well, why did this happen? Well, we should, we should trust God. We should pray about things. But we should spend time in God's word. And I don't know why that's such a revelation to me. How are we going to grow? How are we going to engage with the combat of sin and put it off? How? By being in the Word. Of drinking in the Word. Open the book. Dig your nose in the book. Find a system that helps you be a man and woman of the book. I included it, I think, in, in, in an email. But it's so important to have a reading pattern, I think. To, that sometimes you can get a reader's Bible that has no chapters or verses in it. They're really quite interesting. And because you've got no chapters or verses, it's called a, just a reader's Bible. And you set a timer for 20 minutes. And without a chapter to tell you that you're done, you quickly read 10 chapters. You'll be surprised how much you read if you just put a timer for 20 minutes, as opposed to just reading a couple of chapters. Uh, or I know somebody else who reads six chapters a week, five chapters on a Sunday, and that alone, doesn't sound a lot, gets you through the Bible in a year. There's six chapters a week, and then five chapters on a Sunday. And not another person, I know because I asked around a bit, uses an accountability mechanism. So he texts a, an accountability partner the passage that he just read that day. Find a system that works for you. There are systems that get you through the scripture in systematic fashion or in two years that helps you go deeper or read larger chunks. But the point being is, it's good to have something that makes you deliberate about opening God's word. We're like a newborn infant as Christians. We always will be. We will not grow unless we get milk. I find a million other things to do whenever I think about reading the Word of God. So how do I awaken a longing for the pure milk of the Word? That's a really good question, and I'm so glad you asked. It's interesting. You see that in verse 2 that Peter commands longing, long for the pure spiritual milk. It is a command. It's an imperative. But doesn't, doesn't he know that that's not how it works with me? Because longing is my problem. If I longed for the word, I would read it. My problem is I do not long for it. How do I awaken a longing for the word? How do I obey Peter's command? Verse 3 gives us a clue. If indeed you have test tasted the Lord is good. And instead of if, but since. Since you've tasted the Lord is good, long for the word. What is Peter saying to you? Peter is saying that the way to awaken your appetite for more is to taste. A taste will awaken your appetite for more. You know that to be true, don't you? You know that to be true. Um, you know, and I, There are some wonderful ladies in this room who bake the most delicious cakes. And I always am tempted to go for more because you taste the first. You taste the first. 
I'm sorry, Maya, I'm, you know, but uh, <laughs> you're always tempted to go for more. Or it's dinner time. Maybe, you know, some, some loved one, your wife, your husband, or your children. I'm finding that my children now prepare f- food for me. They, you know, they prepare a f- meal for you. And you do not want to sit down and just say, I can't face it. I don't feel like eating. But you don't have the appetite until the first bite. Before you know it, you've cleared your plate. A taste awakens appetite. And Peter here is referencing Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Peter is saying something remarkable. I want you to do more than just to taste the information on the pages of Scripture. When you drink in the Word, you're drinking in the goodness of the Lord. What do you get in the Word? You get the Lord Himself. You get Christ in the Word. So you're holding in your hands the means by which you can have fellowship with Christ who is now seated at the right hand of God. And Peter is saying, just drink him in. Anyone who's tasted the goodness of Jesus will long for more. The more you have, the more you want. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy Maybe you've been running every which way for nourishment. And it's been junk food when the pure spiritual milk by which you grow is gathering dust on your shelf. So we need a new wardrobe. If you're a Christian by grace, you come to life raised like Lazarus from the grave. We need to take off that clothing, put away the remnants of our old lives. We need a new wardrobe. And we need a new appetite for a new diet. And we can only awaken it by tasting the goodness of Jesus who comes to us in his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, forgive us our neglect of your word. Have mercy on us and forgive us. Show us the wonder of what is available in your scriptures. Christ himself, the living word, the Lord who comes for the nourishment of our hearts by his word. So help us, I pray, by your grace to drink him in and taste the goodness of the Lord. I pray that you would awaken in us an appetite that takes us back to the well to draw water and live, that takes us back to the scripture. I pray for anyone here who has never tasted the goodness of the Lord. I pray that you would draw them to the fountain of living water, our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith they may drink him in. We ask it all in his precious name. Amen.